0: Hi, folks. I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Robert Malone, uh, whose work was instrumental in the development of the mRNA vaccines and, uh, upon the COVID outbreak, became a slightly controversial figure for having a contrarian opinion about the rollout of said vaccines. Now, I'm understating the case quite a lot there, so I thought, uh, Dr. Malone, if you'd like to explain to us your background and authority on the subject and what it was about the vaccine rollout to which you objected?
1: So uh, I'm a physician and a scientist licensed in the state of Maryland here in the United States, trained at UC Davis, UC San Diego, the Salk Institute in the laboratories of molecular biology and virology. Um, Northwestern University in Chicago for my MD, which is one of the top clinical universities in the United States for medical and Harvard medical school and UC Davis for my fellowships. The Harvard fellowship was in global clinical research, including bioethics and regulatory affairs and biostatistics and and basically a brief uh, set of training in epidemiology. And on top of that, I have about 30 years of experience in uh, beginning in the early 1980s spanning the onset of the AIDS events when I was at UC Davis through the present. I've been a uh, expert, uh, become an expert in vaccine development, biotechnology, regulatory affairs, clinical research, uh, program management, largely with the government. Um, And uh, as a contractor or consultant, I've won over $10 billion, that was sort of B, US dollars in grants and contracts for my various clients over time. That does not mean that I got $10 billion, but rather as a consultant and employee, I have led on the development of proposals that have been awarded to that level. Uh, I've uh, been repeatedly served as a, a study section chairperson or study section member for the NIH and the Department of Defense in biotechnology, biodefense, uh, and vaccine development in particular, usually for very large contracts, so uh, um, $10 million to $100 million. Uh, this is my space. I'm, I'm one of the few that are adroit and experienced both in discovery research Uh, as well as in what technically we call advanced development, which is the uh, process that comes after you discover a candidate product and is necessary to bring it through to, uh, authorization for marketing. Uh, I've, I've written multiple INDs, I've run many, many clinical trials and written those clinical trial protocols, et cetera. As a young student at the Salk Institute between 1989 and well, really 1987 and 1990, I had a series of discoveries that were the foundational work that led to this mRNA vaccine technology involving uh, the nature of the structure of RNA that's necessary in order to deliver it and have it expressed in cells and tissues. Uh, the method for manufacturing at large scale, which is still the one that's used, the same enzymes, the same process, and purification, Um, the method of delivery using positively charged fats, and also had a number of other discoveries involving RNA and DNA delivery technology. I wrote the first patent disclosures on this in 1988 uh, at the Salk Institute, and then a series of patent disclosures in 1990, at the company called Vical, a little tiny startup company, and I ran their skunk works initially, uh, set up their molecular biology capabilities where we had additional discoveries that are referred to as naked DNA and RNA delivery that were considered uh, breakthroughs at the time uh, and, and have been highly reproducible uh, in the decades since. Uh, I also, from those original patent disclosures I wrote at VICAL, um, issued nine U.S. patents and multiple international patents uh, that included uh, the broad claims on use of mRNA as a drug, use for vaccines, and the original reduction to practice in mice. In other words, we not only talked about it and had the ideas but we showed that it would work in a mouse model. And then that technology got sold to Merck vaccines. And Merck decided together with ViCal, at that point I'd left to finish medical school, that uh, mRNA as a vaccine material was impractical. And they focused entirely on use of bacterial DNA or plasmids and spent a couple of billion dollars and never were able to bring a product to market after the vaccine uh, patents expired 20 years later, after having been filed, then we saw the field take off. Up until that point, the company Vical together with Merck had very aggressively kept anyone else from working on those that technology, even though they uh, had decided not to develop it themselves. And they actually, actually at that point I was an academic at UC Davis teaching pathology at the School of Medicine with a uh, growing laboratory of about 15 people uh, focused on non-viral gene therapy. And we had a number of other discoveries, but I uh, received a cease and desist letter from ViCal CEO threatening me with little action on the ideas and technologies that I developed when I was at Of so those that I made uh, oodles of money off of this, received one US dollar uh, for my contribution was running at about twenty thousand dollars a year, so no, no, I have not become wealthy. Uh, so that's the, the background and context. I've been very well trained in uh, not only in, in bio defense, clinical research, and regulatory affairs and all that, but also in bioethics. Uh, when I saw what was being done. With these products, I had been diligently on uh, identifying repurposed drugs, including the combination of famotidine and soxid for treatment, hospitalized uh, together with the Department of Defense. Uh, and I saw what was being done with uh, mRNA based products. All the and I saw that fundamental bioethical principles, including uh, principles of informed consent, uh, and in particular uh, coercion, compulsion, and enticement of patients to participate, both in the uh, receipt of these products and into in the clinical trials. I also became aware of physician reports to me that the government of Canada in particular, but also in the United States was suppressing reports of adverse events associated with these uh, vaccine administrations. And it was clear at that time that uh, this was politically highly sensitive, all of this area. And I was uh, running a consulting business that I had built up over 20 years together with my wife. Uh, but. Uh, but I knew that what was happening here absolutely violated fundamentals of bioethics. And since my wife and I are both highly trained in this, we thought, well, at least it would be safe politically for us to write a paper objecting to the bioethics of what was going on. That was published in Trial Site News. And I think it was the first clear uh, shot across the bow with somebody coming out and saying, no, this isn't right what's being done. Uh, that one thing led to another. And since I had the background that I have in the technology, and uh, there were uh, very few worldwide that really understand the tech in the way that I do, uh, and have been embedded in it. Uh, but uh, of those that understand it, pretty everyone in the that had any interactions in the public sphere, had a conflict of interest. They were getting paid by uh, BioNTech or Pfizer or Moderna and and had uh, financial entanglements here. I did not. And so uh, I was outside of this, but highly knowledgeable about the tech. And so people began to reach out to me asking that I would help them to understand the technology, what was going on, what was wrong about it. Um, And since I have this deep background in regulatory affairs and clinical research, I was also able to speak about what was going on in those sectors with what was happening. And uh, one thing led to another, uh, and in particular a, a, a podcast on Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse podcast, which I'd never heard of before. I thought the Dark Horse podcast had something to do with the dark web, and I was a little afraid of even going on but I flew out to Portland, uh, did the hit with Steve Kirsch. Uh, one of the first podcasts I ever did. I'd done one before uh, with uh, someone that hosts under Doctor Eeks, regarding antibody-dependent enhancement, which is one of the problems or potential problems with the technology that's uh, in the in the advancing of uh, these coronavirus vaccines. That's been the history of coronavirus vaccines in the past in humans is is antibody-dependent enhancement problems and in animals. Uh, so I spoke about everything that I knew and what was going on and the data which Byron Bridle had obtained from Japan on the common technical document that had been filed by Pfizer. This is the data on the distribution of the cationic lipids and complexes and how they're not staying where they're injected and they're going to the ovaries and, and steve kirsch brought up the first uh example of the bears data showing a major spike in adverse events et cetera, and everything changed after that I, I got uh you know increasingly attacked by corporate media in particular uh and you you asked in the pre uh, um podcast uh why i thought that was happening or why that seemed to occur It was absolutely a concerted psyops uh, attack campaign involving all of the liberal corporate media outlets, Washington Post, New York Times, Atlantic Monthly in particular, very poorly written article from Atlantic Monthly, which is still promoted on Google and always comes up as at the top when you search my name, but uh, was written by A young gentleman who primarily writes for the Chronicle of Higher Education on wokeism issues, pro wokeism. Uh, So he had no technical experience in this area and was clearly hired to write a hit piece, which he did, which has been very promoted. Uh, So uh, all of this um, uh, cacophony of of, uh, negativity and gaslighting. Was clearly aimed at delegitimizing me because I have this background, and, and I think I was perceived as a major threat. Uh, and then, and plus the growing swell of interest, the, the Dark Horse podcast hit a couple million before it was deplatformed. Uh, you can still find it on Rumble, but you have to look for it. And then a series of things. I was uh, deplatformed from LinkedIn a couple of times. Steve Kirsch intervened and got me put back on. And then uh, finally, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter both deplatformed me. Strangely enough, the day before I went on another podcast with a a gentleman that you may have heard of, uh, um, Joe Rogan. And uh, that, that was recorded on December 31st, I believe, or it was released on December 31st of 2021. I think that was the right date. I think it's been a couple of years now coming up. And uh, that rumor has it that's hit between 50 million and 100 million views since then and was widely seen by many people as a pivotal event in the whole arc of the Corona crisis and the government's response to that. And it became so controversial and was attacked uh, in so many different ways. But everything that I said in retrospect has proven to be valid and true. Uh, A lot of things that I said people just hadn't heard before. And in fact, it got read into the congressional record in the United States Congress uh, as a permanent document, uh, a transcript of that. So that's that's the kind of brief arc up until that point, and I've since done hundreds and hundreds of podcasts and broadcasts, and and I've gone from being a obscure biotechnology subject matter expert uh, to somewhat of a worldwide figure, uh, and you know now I have a full studio, and uh, um, the rest is history, I guess. Hope that brings there's you a, up to There's
0: speed. an awful lot there that I'd like to pick up on, obviously. Um, I suppose the, the first thing would be, uh, if you could explain the difference between the mRNA vaccine and a traditional vaccine, for want of a better word, um, I obviously have just got a standard education in science that you come out of school and college with. Uh, and so as I understood it, a, a normal vaccine was a sort of dead version of uh, an existing uh, disease that your body would be trained on. And then would protect you in the future but i understand that mrna vaccines are not the same but i don't really so know that, what's that,
1: mRNA that's kind is. of a gross oversimplification yes. um <laughs> uh, as as a class of drug products i'm going to talk kind of use i'm going to try to do a hybrid of lay uh in regulatory talk and I, hopefully i'm not going to lose people um as a as a category of regulated drug products vaccines are complex and diverse, you know, a standard drug might be a single uh, chemical compound that can be synthesized, purified, identified, characterized, blah, blah, blah. Um, Vaccines include what you're just describing, a killed version of a pathogen. Often if we're going to use killed, uh, it might be a virus or a bacteria. Um, and for instance, if we think about influenza vaccines, classical influenza vaccines are influenza virus grown in a chicken egg, an embryonated chicken egg, and then that chicken embryo is ground up, uh, using a mechanized process mm. and, uh, and the resulting, uh, components are, are fractionated, purified, and often um, the, in, in the crudest vaccines, the virus that's recovered is killed inactivated activated using a number of different ways. But in the more modern formulations, it's actually split. You, you break the virus apart and then you purify the constituents and you reassemble them, much like they make milk right now. None of us uh, hardly ever eat uh, or drink uh, raw milk, it's all fractionated and then reassembled and purified and, and packaged and corporatized, right? Um, same with uh, flu vaccine. So there's, there's killed, which is what you were describing, often with an adjuvant, something that is inflammatory that's added uh, to prompt your immune system there's subunits that's what i just described when you take a pathogen break it apart and then purify parts of it and then use those to formulate with an adjuvant there's also live attenuated and there's a reason why i'm getting to this in in many other versions okay a live attenuated vaccine for example the classical smallpox vaccine or yellow fever vaccines are actually weakened forms of the virus the original salk polio vaccine was a weakened polio virus. And in fact, it's it was weakened uh, in such a way that there was a significant number of cases of reversion where the virus mutated as it was replicating in children, the vaccine virus to once again become uh, what we would call a live polio uh, virus. So in, in the United States, almost all the cases of polio that have occurred since the invention of the Salk vaccine have been vaccine-associated polio caused by the jab, okay? Mm-hmm. So lots of different kinds of viruses. Yep. Um, the use of gene therapy technology uh, for vaccination was actually something that I came up with as an idea. Sorry, I'm not a mass murderer, but if you want to call me one, you can. Um, it's your prerogative on social media, Um, you can join my haters. Uh, Um, but, uh, um, the use of, I was in a gene therapy lab at the Salk Institute, working on the use of a retrovirus for gene therapy. And the senior postdoc in the lab was working on an adenovirus for gene therapy back in the mid to late eighties. And uh, I came up with the idea that any of these gene therapy technologies could be used for vaccination. And that was in response to the fact that they were all fundamentally flawed in that they weren't working for gene therapy purposes because the person receiving the new gene, their immune system didn't know that that was a good gene. It only knew, knows that it's a different gene and it was the problem that was confronted by gene therapy then and now is the immune response of the patient of the child or whomever that has the genetic disease against the good gene because their immune system doesn't know it's good intrinsically they just it just knows it's different and so it'll attack it and so the idea of using gene therapy for vaccines was basically making lemonade out of lemons It was a bad news story that I played a role in, in coming to first understand. And so it was easy for me to make the next leap since I had a background in vaccines from my AIDS time uh, at UC Davis and said, oh, we could use this. We may not be able to cure people of genetic disease, but we could use it for vaccines. So this senior postdoc getting back to that part of the story named Dinko Valerio left the laboratory and he founded a Dutch company called Crusel, which started off focusing on gene therapy. And then he came to me one day in a meeting and he said, Robert, I think you're right. And I'm going to pivot Crucell to becoming a vaccine company. Crusel then got sold for many hundreds of millions to a company called Janssen or J and J. And that's the basis for the J and J vaccine product, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine product that you're probably familiar with there in the Mm. UK. Okay, so that's that those two are also gene therapy based vaccines. Um, They're using gene delivery technology or polynucleotide delivery technology to cause your body to manufacture protein from the virus as if it's infected by the virus. So the logic was this why I was telling you about live attenuated The large logic here is that by using gene therapy based technologies, you can cause your body to mount an immune response, more complete immune response to a viral protein without having to use a live attenuated vaccine, which are intrinsically toxic. For instance, the yellow fever vaccine is so toxic. It's a nasty piece of work. It's so toxic that if you're in a line in Brazil to get your yellow fever vaccine and you're of the opinion that if some is good more is going to be better and you get back in line a second time to take the jab it could kill you okay you will get yellow fever right so it's dose dependent so you okay? you, you so skip around what, the
0: danger of that right is what you're saying with the mRNA vaccines
1: uh potentially okay but like with everything <laughs> everything comes at a price there's no free ride mm. and uh The technology that I had also worked on having to do with the delivery for most of the 90s, as well as at Baikal, I could never overcome the toxicity of that technology, which we now call lipid nanoparticles. And I abandoned it in my own research, having multiple patents, some of which are behind me right now as images, uh, plaques, I developed many different cationic lipids. Was at the forefront of the formulation technology, and working with a uh, appointment at UC Davis and the California Regional Primate Research Center. And in both mice and non-human primate models, I could never overcome the, the toxicity of these formulations, and so I abandoned them in the '90s. Uh, and turned to delivery technologies like pulsed electrical field and jet injection which are also used right now and have companies founded around them but as i mentioned the the uh industry largely with funding from governments and in the case of the united states basically cia funding through uh, uh darpa Uh, booted up that technology, funded it, and drove it forward, particularly in the form of Moderna in the U.S., BioNTech under German funding in Europe, and a company called uh, CureVac uh, that was uh, funded by, I believe that's the name, funded by Elon Musk. Hmm. Um, And so that's That's what led to the present, and just to put a pin in that, I had no role in development of these mRNA vaccines. I'm just a knowledgeable observer and critic.
0: So I'm interested in the toxicity element that you were unable to overcome. Uh, Could you explain that in more detail, please?
1: So. the underlying technology that's used here involving positively charged fats that are used to coat and collapse the RNA and deliver it into cells uh, is built around uh, some uh, pharmaceutical or pharmacologic methods for causing these complexes to fuse with cell membranes. Okay? Mm -hmm. Particles. They are complex. As of, with just uh, for uh, reference, just today I published on my stack, sub- our stack a lengthy essay having to do with the nature of the technology, how it works. um. Formulation in a cell phone, etc. By the way, these are not nanobots or nanites. And this is the 21st century, not the 24th century. Yeah. Just want to make it clear. So, the nanobots that will reprogram your brain, hmm. unlike what some people will have asserted. The nature of the toxicity has been in sick products to fuse with cells. There's always been a problem in the use of these products, this technology for cell culture for research purposes. And when they bind and fuse to cells um, at some frequency, they cause those cells to lose membrane integrity. And if cells no longer have good membrane integrity, they die. They basically blow up and so these these complexes are intrinsically toxic they cause cell death they disrupt cell membranes and together with the pseudouridine containing rna because this is not really rna this is a chemically synthesized mrna like molecule um and that's a whole nother rabbit hole hmm. uh but um, together with that mRNA, there's a variety of other toxicities that have been identified, which seem to include poisoning mitochondria, which are the energy engines of your cells, um, and a number of other things, including direct toxicity to heart cells, which give rise to the myocarditis and pericarditis. Um, they appear uh, to be toxic to the... Uh, what Pfizer, the young executive from Pfizer that got caught on film by project Veritas referred to as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonadal axis, which is fancy sciencey talk for your endocrine system. Hmm. So they appear to be toxic to your endocrine system, certainly to your reproductive system, which is driven by your endocrine system, certainly uh, toxic to your heart directly because we know that the release of cardiac enzymes occurs very shortly after the injection. So that's a sign of direct cytotoxicity. They do appear to cross the blood brain barrier and trigger inflammation in neural tissues. Uh, And uh, between the complexes themselves and the protein that they cause your body to make spike, which is absolutely a toxin, as first shown at the Salk Institute in 2020, Um, spike is a toxin. And between that toxicity and the intrinsic toxicity of these lipid nanoparticles, we have a lot of problems associated with blood clotting, including ischemic stroke uh, and a variety of other things. It does seem to, these complexes do seem to damage the lining of your blood vessels and they cause a lot of other different types of toxicities and i could i have a list of about 20 uh adverse events maybe yeah adverse events literature uh but we don't that would you know another 15 minutes and i'd have to pull up the list uh so I, that, that's okay because th- are-
0: yeah this this hits on the point i wanted to uh talk about because uh, Anthony Fauci recently uh, actually admitted, uh, and I can give a very brief quote, that, that the mRNA vaccine carries, quote, a very low risk of getting myocarditis, especially in young men. And the British Heart Foundation for, for Britain, in England specifically, uh, they say as of June 2023, there have been nearly 100,000 excess deaths involving uh, a cardiovascular disease since the beginning of the pandemic, so in three years. So 30,000 unexpected deaths per year.
1: Oh, that's that's kind of, uh, Tony's comment and, uh, and a of comments from um, Dr. Asim Mohatra there in the UK. It's been quite outspoken about this. I know he's somewhat controversial. Uh, I consider him a friend. Uh, but uh, uh, Dr. Fauci has a long track record in recent CNN uh, presentation, uh, a hit, uh, regarding masks. He has a long history of substituting his opinion for actual scientific data. Mm. And that's been one of the big problems and we can call that lying or maybe he's just, uh, you know, uh, a narcissist, uh, and egocentric. And he thinks that re- remember the whole thing of, I am the science. Yes. Uh, he, he seems to feel quite comfortable substituting his opinion uh, for facts and data. And this statement uh, of a low incidence actually is not supported by the data. Now, he uses a descriptive term, rare or et cetera. Those words all are in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the beholder. What one person might consider rare, another person whose son or daughter has developed uh, myocarditis or pericarditis, might not think that an event rate of, you know, between one and 30 in one publication, and one in 1800 in, in a number of other publications is not rare, mm-hmm. uh, given that this has been administered to billions of people. And we're talking about generally, young people who are otherwise healthy and at virtually no risk, for uh, hospitalized disease or death from this virus which carries an overall mortality with COVID, not necessarily from COVID, of well less than 1%. So in case of children, um, those children, a healthy child has a risk of death from this virus. And that's the more lethal versions of this virus as opposed to the Omicron-related strains that are currently circulating of something like 0.0001%. In other words, statistically zero.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, and um, yet they have a significant risk of developing myocarditis or pericarditis, among many other things, like mm-hmm. the endocrine damage that we were just talking about, and the central nervous system damage, and et cetera, and reproductive damage, and blood clots, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. et cetera. Et cetera. this this is seems to be what underpins the uh sudden death or unexplained death or excess all cause mortality is the phrase you're using appropriately um that may be the only outcome measure of any kind of integrity and reliability here and it's one that's captured by the insurance industry which is very focused on making sure they get their numbers right and has a bit of a crisis right now because their numerical projections for death and disease in young people have suddenly been blown out of the water by over two statistical standard deviations from the norm. Uh, and paradoxically that, uh, rise in excess all cause mortality does not coincide with the onset of the quote pandemic. It corresponds to the onset of the vaccine campaigns. So uh, you can draw whatever conclusion you wish about that, but those are the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about myocarditis and this assertion that came out very early on once, and I was involved you know, directly with the people that originally detected the myocarditis signal, mm-hmm. which was denied by the C. Mm-hmm. on to the Israelis, and Israelis confirmed that in the FDA, and then the CDC jumped on the bandwagon. It's prolonged it was a problem, but what was put out as propaganda, and I'll talk a moment. What was put out as propaganda was this myocarditis was mild and transient. At the time, they were just admitting that it was happening. It didn't have a or short lived, or children would rapidly heal from it. In fact, what we've learned since is that it's tracking in terms of mortality, very, very similar to myocarditis. It's a rare event, but it carries with it a five-mortality. Okay, so that's not nothing. Uh, Especially if your child has devitis or pericarditis. Uh, So, then, what is if you sample blood after receiving these products? By the way, it also happens with with the adenovirus vectors, they do. But if you sample, the blood after administration of these products and you say for a very specific heart cell enzyme that you find that you have elevated troponin levels suggestive of a mitochondrial infarction, heart damage, um, within hours to days after administration of the products, that's a term of toxicity of heart muscle that cannot be denied. Now, only, only a fractal of those have it so bad to call to the doctor or the hospital. We call it like clinical myocarditis. And the numbers for outcomes in terms of mortality is for clinical myocarditis. So I'm not saying that half or more of all people are going to die within five years or have a 15%. All of that fear promoted by some that basically go around and get clicks and likes by saying, that, um, I'm not saying that at all. Um, the, the, rate clinical mile between 10 and 15% and the clinical with is tracking along those same lines currently.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's not my. Not and it, it the clinical myocarditis rate of men between one in a thousand and one in fifteen hundred.
0: So would uh, I, I remember these the...
1: are people have any risk? Of yeah. Uh,
0: so I recently watched the Died Suddenly movie, and I don't know anything about the subject. So I thought I'd ask, uh, what was your opinion on it?
1: So uh, Stu Peters is an interesting character who's the uh, prime driver of that together with his partner, Dr. Jane Ruby. And just to uh, clarify a little bit for background, Stu Peters' uh, employment and career prior to becoming a broadcaster over the last three years was that uh, uh, he was a bounty hunter. He has absolutely no uh, university level education, no understanding of biology, uh, let alone pathology or medicine. Dr. Jane Ruby is actually a nurse. Uh, Her doctorate is in economics. So she plays a a physician and wears the stethoscope. But in fact, uh, she has no real training. Uh, I don't know that she's ever taken uh, anatomy or not. Uh, She certainly has no training in pathology. Uh, The film is a mixture of uh, truth and fiction. You'll recall the opening scenes having to do with Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Uh, And um, many are of the opinion that Stu may actually be a chaos agent working for uh, government or pharmaceutical industry because of his practices of hyping various uh, things Uh, Like, for instance, the presence, uh, the uh, false assertions about the presence of snake venom uh, Hmm. in the vaccines or uh, to be deployed in the water, etc. He has a long history of uh, going off on unprovable assertions uh, throughout the COVID crisis, um, which generate a lot of clicks and likes and attention but which I assert are basically fear porn. Uh, they're not grounded in fact. So regarding that movie that got a lot of attention and uh, in a positive way, helped bring uh, attention to the uh, phenomena of the unexplained deaths. Uh, um, and, and I personally prefer the book from Ed Dowd called Cause Unknown in this topic area which is uh essentially a picture book uh with qr codes that you can click on and it's press clippings it's a compilation of press clippings from all over the world of people that have died suddenly uh um and the details uh that were covered in the lay press about their events and of course ed dowd has been a leader together with some of his colleagues in portugal in documenting the excess all-cause mortality from a variety of databases all across the world, as we were discussing earlier. In the case of the Died Suddenly movie, uh, nurse Jane Ruby uh, moves into a variety of environments where she's talking with embalmers or undertakers, about what they've observed. And she doesn't uh, undertrain background. She doesn't understand that Uh, Also, when we are blood, uh, whether or not we've taken vaccines or had COVID or anything else, this is just the nature of when blood stops circulating, it clots. It's a fundamental phenomena of the fibrin cascade, okay? Those clots have a particular appearance in morphology. They tend to be more uh, loose, gel-like, often dark red. Um, and can be stripped out of veins if you know I've had to do autopsies as a pathologist uh, and um, you know I'm, I'm very familiar with clotted blood. Uh, however, there are these very fibrous gray rubber-like clots that are very unusual uh, and they are observed in a subset of patients that uh, have, a sudden death after receiving one of these products. And they appear to be highly cross-linked fibrin-rich clots that are very resistant to degradation. Normally fibrin, as I was mentioning, forms clots and then they dissolve. Um, And we have various technologies for stroke treatment, for instance, or Myocardial infarction caused by blood clots in the heart or blood clots that have been thrown into the heart because they've formed somewhere else or blood clots that were formed somewhere else, like in your pelvis and get thrown up your blood vessels, your uh, um, veins, venous system into the lungs. We call that pulmonary emboli. And uh there's no question that there is a safety signal associated with uh, these vaccines having to do with uh, stroke, um, a major cause or symptom associated with adverse blood clotting. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the characteristics of these blood clots that are associated with the administration of the vaccine products is that they Um, are like, uh, like I said, they're like rubber bands. They're extremely hard, firm, resistant to typical uh, methods for breaking them up. The cardiologist, interventional cardiologist that normally might use balloon angioplasty, which is where they put a catheter down, for instance, and blow up a little tiny balloon at the end of the catheter to push the the gel-like clot towards the vessel walls so that the blood can flow through, find that these very highly cross-linked clots cannot easily be treated in this way. You can't get the catheter tip poked through them. They're too hard. Hmm. Um, There was a German pathologist, understand that uh, autopsies have been discouraged by Western nations all, all around the world, uh, during the COVID crisis. So we have very little data post-mortem from qualified people as opposed to embalmers or undertakers in looking at uh, the pathology of what happens in these people that have died suddenly after vaccination. And they there's in particular a series from a German pathologist of 10 or 15 of these autopsies, rare autopsies in which he conclusively demonstrated a couple of key findings. One being uh, the presence of these clots in a variety of tissues, and also the loss of fibrin bundles in skin. So the things that keep your skin from sagging. Um, And that's now been confirmed uh, in uh, people that have not died. That's now a finding. That's why some people that receive these Multiple inoculations—I hesitate to call them vaccines—often look like they've aged. Uh, you, when you lose uh, skin fibrin bundle integrity, your skin sags, and you look like you're an old man, like me, as opposed to a young man like you.
0: That's very generous uh, of you.
1: And uh, it's just what happens with aging, and it's what happens part of the toxicities associated with these products. Um. So that German pathologist, unfortunately, himself died suddenly of explained causes. He was trying to rescue his son from a flood. And both the son and the father died, unfortunately. And so we don't have the benefit of his speaking out like he had been doing about his autopsy series. But uh, he had collaborated very closely with the pathologist in the United States, Ryan, Dr. Ryan Cole, who's a friend. And uh, Ryan carries on with uh, discussing and documenting what's going on with the blood clotting. Uh, he has developed methods to show that the spike protein is present in these blood clots, uh, particularly after vaccination. The key assay is to show the spike is not, is there viral proteins are not, that shows that it was from the vaccine and not from a virus infection. And that's what he finds. And he's also at the center of documenting these, what are now being called turbo cancers, Hmm. this alarming incidence of highly aggressive cancer or uh, cancer reactivation in people that previously were thought to be cancer-free that also seems to be associated with receiving these uh, products. Okay, so that's died suddenly, I think died suddenly Uh, did a service in to the world in uh, bringing the topic uh, to attention, but it unfortunately had such a mixture of truth and fiction and uh, real findings and misinterpretations that it was easily discounted. Uh, We live in an information battlefield these days in which a variety of uh, organizations and persons seek actively to delegitimize others, we were talking about me and my experiences early on. This cuts across this entire information landscape or battlescape. The technical term for this is fifth generation warfare, or psyops. But uh, unfortunately, died suddenly um, had both a positive and negative impact. It cast uh, a, a shadow on the whole field by this, by having this mixture of truth and uh, very hyped uh, falsehood.
0: There, there's a lot, lot I'd like to continue asking about. But in the interest of time, um, I suppose I'll ask, um, there appears to have been an uptick in the number of uh, athletes who have um, themselves died suddenly on the pitch. Or in whatever they're doing. Is it safe to conclude that that's probably a connection? There's a connection there between uh, these events and their being forced to take the vaccine if they wish
1: to compete? It's safe to conclude that if you wish to be deplatformed by the uh, <laughs> censorship board in the UK. Uh, otherwise, uh, better uh, take the lesson of uh, Neil Oliver and GB News and uh, use. Uh, platitudes and euphemisms instead of calling it directly. Uh, So some people use a a carrot icon instead of a vaccine or using the word vaccine in social media, for example. Uh, I think GB News has learned to be very cautious uh, in the face of your uh, UK-based censorship board for good reason.
0: Thankfully, uh, we're not regulated by Ofcom because we're not a TV broadcaster. <laughs> so actually, I can say that without Ofcom bearing down on us at the moment.
1: I, I, think, I think that uh, we certainly have a strong correlation, hmm. so it seems. Uh, and what's interesting about high-performance athletes as well as military personnel, particularly uh, Special Forces high-performing personnel, is these people, uh, and remember we have a male bias to the myocarditis. And myocarditis and pericarditis absolutely cause damage to the heart. Damage to the heart leads to scarring. Scarring leads to uh, ventricular fibrillation and sudden death and other forms of cardiac compromise. Okay, so there's well-established pat, you know, pathophysiologic pathway there. It's documented for decades. Hmm. Um, uh, You know, damage to the heart. Heart doesn't heal. It scars. Those scars conduct electricity differently, and that leads to uh, what's called circus rhythms, that lead to ventricular fibrillation and other types of uh, ventricular anomalies. I'll I'll take the word
0: on the complex. uh, The 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 the, the terminology on the pathway. um
1: so uh i'm saying that for the censors and the people that are going to attack us right uh so uh um it's called defensive uh medicine i've I've
0: been there Um, i i understand
1: yeah so so um uh all of these what appear to be high risk groups high performance athletes of both genders uh as well as young people particularly young adult or young males i should say up to mid-30s uh, and weightlifters are another category. They often have elevated testosterone levels and they're often um, experiencing these unfortunate events at a peak periods of performance. You're talking about the footballers uh, that are, are you know, functioning. That's, that's gotta be one of the most strenuous uh, um, physical activities known to man, um, constant running up and down the field with all the stress and the crowd and everything else and uh, you're you're full of stress hormones, elevated testosterone levels, your heart is functioning at its absolute peak of capability and uh, small glitches can cause big outcomes. So uh, there there does seem to be this testosterone link and testosterone levels are absolutely elevated in a lot of these high performance individuals. Uh, and um, there's a lot of theories about why that link exists. But I, I think that what we have is a empiric observation. So that's kind of an epidemiologic signal. And uh, those usually are the normal response of a regulatory authority or a medical community to an epidemiologic signal is to say, hey, something's going on here. We ought to stop this thing that might be causal and investigate it and figure out what what is true and what is false before we continue administering this medicine, uh, as opposed to the denialism that we see. Uh, So do we have any uh, pathophysiological, there's that big word again, any mechanistic link that would make sense out of this? and lead to an assumption a a plausible assumption of causal relationship and as we just covered with uh cardiac damage myocarditis pericarditis scarring circus rhythms blah 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 that is absolutely a plausible mechanism of action for sudden death so we have uh, established plausible mechanism of action We have epidemiology and observation. Uh, We have unique characteristics in these people that are consistent with that. And so I conclude from that, that it is certainly a leading hypothesis that this uh, increase in all cause mortality, particularly observed in these uh, cohorts that should not be dying. That's why the insurance companies are all on. going crazy and pulling their hair out is because they've issued insurance policies based on the fact that young people generally don't die. And now they are their actuarial calculations are all shot uh, because something's happening, and that something that's happening corresponds with the onset of these vaccine campaigns. It does not correspond to the onset of the uh, infection. Now, a lot of other things were happening people were depressed, uh, opiate abuse, fentanyl, mm. um, lockdowns, you know, uh, uh, suicidal behavior, blah, blah, blah. So the all cause mortality probably is multifactorial, but I think there are abundance of data suggesting that a major component of that increase in all cause mortality is highly likely to be attributable to these products. That's my opinion. And just to put a pin in it, um, well over a year ago, um, myself and the other physicians that I used to tour with uh, almost constantly, including in the UK, came out with an unequivocal statement in a press conference. This is the Physicians Health Associates, or uh, also known as the Global COVID Summit Group. And if you can find it, because Google tries to down-select your ability to find it, but if you can find our web pages, you'll find a press conference in which we say unequivocally these products should be withdrawn from the market. They're not safe, they're not effective, and they they are adulterated uh, with residual DNA. And for a variety of reasons, uh, they should have been withdrawn from the market rather than continue to be promoted, in my opinion.
0: This is the next subject I'd like to go on to, is the ethics of the COVID vaccination rollouts that have been uh, practically mandatory across the Western world.
1: Um, now, as, as you recall, and <laughs> as I predicted, uh, we would find a fallback position at some point in time, and it's now happening where government officials are repeatedly stating, well, we didn't force you to take them. Mm. That's obviously a lie. Yes. Um, uh, So uh, just to be blunt about it, uh, and remember, the title of my book is The Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. So lots of lies, and I'm working on another version of the lie right now um, uh, in terms of who have been the top 12 uh, disinformation spreaders. Just to be clear, I mean,
0: our governments were openly coercive about this, about a vaccine that, as I understand it, vaccines take a lot of time to develop. So these were very swiftly produced. And then our governments were openly coercive to make the population, the majority of the population, take them. That's quite worrying. Absolutely.
1: And that is, so coercion compulsion are forbidden um, by well-established international norms in bioethics and you'll recall i led off by saying the thing that allowed me that i felt comfortable co- basically coming out of the closet about was i thought the bioethical breaches were so bad they were so egregious that i could at least talk about that without getting zapped uh but you know silly me um truth is is a casualty here uh no matter what you're talking about
0: it's always the first casualty of every war so how was there such a cascading failure of ethics in uh the our governments the media the scientific institutions how is it possible that there could be an international w- worldwide failure of
1: ethics like this so what has occurred has been a concerted uh propaganda campaign mm. uh and i assert Uh, I was the one who originally pointed to the trusted news initiative managed by the BBC, which managed much of this, which had been built as a uh, ostensibly to counter Russian disinformation, but was rapidly pivoted. Actually, even before the outbreak, uh, there was cooperation between BBC trusted news initiative and the pharmaceutical industry to direct those capabilities against those that were raising concerns about vaccines and that rolled straight into the government's response That is basically if you pick it apart the logic is that this virus is so pathogenic it represents literally a potential extinction boundary event for humankind It is so pathogenic that we must do anything as soon as possible to stop its spread. And um, all things are justified. The suspension of norms, ethical norms, is justified in the mind of the government and the Five Eyes Alliance, remember? UK, New Zealand, Canada, US, Australia. Okay, the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance was behind this all the way through. Uh, It's MI6 that edited my Wikipedia page, just to put a pin in that, okay? Um, Your 77th Brigade, your Nudge Unit. I mean, the UK has been a leading source of modern propaganda technology. And that has been deployed, I argue, globally, largely through the CIA and the American intelligence apparatus and its allies. What people often don't recognize that didn't have the benefit of traveling globally like I did because I took the jab and was armed, but I, I spoke all over the world um, during the outbreak. And what stunned me was the harmonization of the attacks and the media and the messaging and the strategies all over the world. For instance, simultaneously throughout the West, influencers were purchased. Mm. They were purchased in Austria. They were purchased in Italy. They were purchased in the UK. They were purchased in Australia. You saw this, the comedians, the musicians, um, the uh, um, actors, all in harmony, pushing the same government approved messaging. That took a lot of money. Okay. And it took a massive coordination activity, which has just baffled me, uh, who would be large enough and capable enough to be able to plan and implement that type of capability. And I, the, that's a key topic of the book is me searching out what who are the puppet masters? How could this be done? This coordinated propaganda campaign globally hmm. with all of the accessory uh, things that were added to it. And I've had uh, people come to me uh, from the US federal government, particularly people associated with the group called Feds for Medical Freedom including people from the CIA directly, uh, including an individual who is cited in these recent publications, documenting that the CIA was paying people off to downplay the lab origin of the virus. Okay, I have so many people have come to me and talked to me about what they've observed. And the same repeated story has occurred all the way through. Um, which is that the CIA and the uh, American intelligence community, for instance, within USAID and the State Department and other branches, and of course, NIH and NIAID, who are intimately integrated into this entire biodefense military industrial complex in the United States, were the ones that were funding and backing and provided the technology transfer to the Wuhan Institute of Virology that led to this virus then they reacted uh, strongly. You'll recall the burner phones with Jeremy Farrar and uh, Tony Fauci and uh, uh, Francis Collins when they were busy conspiring about how to cover up what had happened. All of the stuff that's happened in the Lancet and the other journals trying to mask the story. And then uh, subsequently All of the information that's come out about the role of the intelligence community, I mentioned MI6, MI5, 77th Brigade. There's been in the press uh, from Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, articles about the deep involvement of the military uh, PSYOPs units in promoting all of this throughout the Western world. Uh, We've had a concerted PSYOPs propaganda campaign the likes of which the world has never seen before. And it's all been based on the thesis that we have this, number one, two, two core lies. Number one, that this is a highly lethal pathogen when it's not. And that this is a highly effective and safe vaccine, which it's not. Okay, uh-huh. So take those two as articles of faith that it's a highly lethal virus and it's a highly effective vaccine, that leads to the belief system that anybody speaking about anything which might cause, quote, vaccine hesitancy, the unwillingness of the population to accept this product, that language should be suppressed for the public good. And so we had a documented agreement, for instance, between the United States government and the British government to suppress any information about adverse events associated with these, even though they were observing them. Mm. We have the recent documentation uh, by through Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA is the acronym in the United States, where we can force the government to release certain records. Um, it was filed by a group called ICANN. Uh, Adam Siri is the lawyer that did this. And then covered by Zachary Stiber in the Epic Times at the beginning of September. It documented that the United States government has been very familiar with the fact that these vaccines are leading to what's called negative efficacy. And they were aware of that in 2021. Now, the data has gradually trickled out from various UK sources, Canadian databases, and other databases from around the world. That this phenomena of negative efficacy is real, hmm. which means that when you receive the boost tab, short term, and then it tapers off and it continues tapering baseline of zero protection to where you actually, if you receive these products, you become more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to develop the infection than if you had never. Of course, the comparator is all of, all of the natural infection. So they have what's called natural immunity. People, There was all kinds of denialism that that was an effective form of immunity. Having had the infection and developed natural immunity was not considered sufficient grounds for your vaccine. Uh, of technologies that were deployed. But in fact, it's well-documented and widely the natural immunity conferred from infection is superior to that uh, conferred by the vaccine. That's kind of, you asked how this happened.
0: Mm.
1: And um, as somebody who has been deeply involved in trying to ask that question now for two years plus, written a book about it, writes a daily substack about it, uh, there's very deep and technical in many cases, sometimes snarky. Uh, um, I've, I've asked, uh, the, the question has bedeviled me. And, uh, over the last month and a half, I've come to the conclusion reluctantly. That this has not been orchestrated by, uh, the bank of international settlements or, uh, the old British aristocracy or uh, um, uh, Klaus Schwab or all the other bad guys that have been hypothesized. But in fact, the one organization that had the capabilities, the motivation and was there doing it, proven is the Five Eyes Alliance intelligence community led by the CIA.
0: That is a very strong claim. Uh, I can't yep. prove it or disprove it either way. But one thing that makes me think that there might you might be on something here is the reaction of the world leaders, particularly Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, when COVID first hit, uh, these being at least ostensibly right-wing leaders who are populists and not um, tremendously um, well-liked by the uh, various internal establishments of the countries that they run and even they call the
1: deep state i'm sorry what we call the deep state here in the united yes, states yes we can
0: call it the deep state um, and they very quickly fell into line with the pro-covid na- uh, vaccination narrative even though we have the leaked whatsapp messages from boris johnson on this uh, who looked at the initial data which proved to be accurate that 85 percent of people over I think it was 75, uh, survive COVID. And of course, that just gets better and better and better as you go. And so his response was to, quote, take it on the chin, which actually I think was the right response. You know, it's a a flu-like disease. We have to just endure it.
1: And a modification of that that position was taken by Sweden. Yes. And they were excoriated for it. And yet their all-cause mortality outcomes data, which is the only reliable data we have, are, is among the best in all of Europe. Mm.
0: So the, the point being, if even the right-wing populist uh, leaders fell into line, the question is, well, how did that happen? Because they knew that this wasn't the right thing to do, and they did it anyway.
1: I think that they they were subjected to intense pressure from individuals who were being identified as of bona fide experts. And uh, in the United States, we've been able to follow a trail of details about that. Uh, one of the things that happened was the importation quite literally, of the Chinese uh, response management uh, method. Uh, through Michael Pottinger in the United States into the National Security Council, and then down. And he, his wife was the one that uh, got Deborah Burks hired. Um, you know, goes on and on. All the details are, are increasingly coming out. Um, but, uh, in, in many people don't appreciate except in retrospect, if you remind them, we all have such short memories mm. of the, uh, images of people dying in the streets in Wuhan, and the rapid build of the hospital, and uh, the freezer vans in uh, Northern Italy, which turned out to be totally artifactual press hype. uh, And the mass graves, uh, it goes on and on and on. A lot of that was full on propaganda. Hmm. It was designed, you know, the most generous explanation we have of that propaganda campaign is that uh, uh, intelligence community nudge units etc the government uh, believe the threat was so severe that it was acceptable to use what i call fear porn to drive uh public acceptance of these products and uh, acceptance of the lockdowns and the masking and the other things which were promoted by the CCP as being effective. That decimated our economies, resulted in the most massive upward transfer of wealth in recent history. We can go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Ernst Wolf in Germany uh, there on the continent uh, was one of the first to really talk about the economic aspects of all of this and float uh, his observations that at a minimum Uh, a variety of uh, very large economic interests exploited this uh, crisis for their own financial benefit, uh, whether or not they actually engineered it in some way. We do have the clear documentation of event 201, which was a cooperated uh, planning exercise for a coronavirus that occurred a month before the outbreak and was handled through Johns Hopkins University at a uh, Johns Hopkins uh, subsidiary that's well known to be a CIA cutout. And it involved the cooperation between corporate media. Um, uh, We could call it the biodefense establishment or military industrial complex in the United States, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and a number of other major players in event 201, where they planned out what they would do in terms of media messaging, propaganda, actions, uh, willingness to suppress unrest through uh, violent means, uh, what we might call authoritarian responses. That was, that was absolutely all pre-planned, whether you want to call it a pandemic or not, mm-hmm. uh, there's no question that that was planned, just as there was planning and war game exercises associated with monkeypox, which paradoxically predicted the monkeypox outbreak almost to the day. Uh, remarkable. So, yeah, remarkable uh, and uh, mar- remarkable coincidence, as Steve Bannon says, there are no coincidences in, in politics. Hmm. Uh, and this is absolutely global politics that is, we're observing play out here, so in addition I, to the public. I,
0: Can I pivot slightly? Because I I find uh, your identifying the international intelligence organizations to be an interesting angle on this. Because when Elon Musk purchased Twitter, it turned out that he employed dozens of FBI agents, or ex-FBI agents, who of course have strong connections to the FBI. And shortly after his purchase, your Twitter account was reinstated after being deplatformed. Do you think there's any connection between your deplatforming and those uh, agents working
1: at Twitter? Um, and it's not just FBI, also close ties with the CIA were documented and uh, many other agencies. For instance, the CDC, through the Foundation for CDC, ran a cyber-stalking group uh, that uh, targeted many, including documented Mary Baldwin, uh, who is... Uh, advancing her legal case right now uh it is a paradox that uh linkedin and twitter both deplatformed me literally on the same day about 24 hours before the joe rogan podcast just an interesting coincidence uh
0: remarkable again isn't it
1: the the uh, so LinkedIn has permanently banned me. So all of the time that I invested in that site and building documentation to sustain my consulting practice is gone. So that my Twitter account uh, and that of uh, others was reactivated when, when Jay Bhattacharya was in Vider headquarters. Jay Bhattacharya was one of the uh, academics in the creation. And a full professor of epidemiology at Stanford. And so invited into Twitter corporate headquarters shortly after the action and uh, uh, reviewed a lot of the documents uh, that called the Twitter files. Mm-hmm. And somehow, in that, that transactionally to reactivate my account, um, Peter McCullough and a number of others. So without notice, I suddenly found myself, people were writing to me, Robert, your account's been turned on again. <coughs> and it grew extremely really to just short a million. And then it got throttled um, quite heavily. And it remained quite heavily. Uh, um, I seem to be on a list of missed, dis, or malinformation spreaders. Uh, particularly uh, Substack. So anybody that uses the Substack heavily throttled also. Uh, So for instance, Matt Matt Taibbi uh, news, about that lately. Uh, So it's become much more difficult to your Substack account uh, and to grow followers. I'm now at um, um, 1 million on Twitter. And across from time, about 2 million. But that's that's what happened there is, is uh, the brakes were taken. I was reactivated. The brakes were taken off. Uh, the followers exploded from about half a million to just shy of a million. The breaks back, and it's gradually crawled up to a little, little over 1.1 million.
0: I, like, I actually had a similar experience Uh We have uh,
1: well over 300,000. Sorry. Uh, that's, that's, you know, they don't, Twitter doesn't have any choice now because of the new EU rights about discs and malinformation doesn't really have the infrastructure and capability to segregate Twitter years as Twitter, the United States. And so functionally, the, the censorship industrial, like the back door. Of the amendment States by getting the European Union to impose these restrictions, which Twitter has passed. Uh, Elon Musk agreed to these terms and conditions months ago. And of course, who is a uh, um, very active member of the world. Economic <laughs> Uh, the WEF, um and uh, chair a couple of their committees, uh, and um, very much uh, with the European position is a uh, position for uh, that freedom of speech is not freedom of. Uh, so that's that's been the response that Elon Musk. Uh, promised to the European Union uh, that he will uh, send uh, voices, and uh, for those that are also, uh, um, what what does she say, naughty? Uh, something. Uh, those those that are uh, spreading disapproved content uh, will be uh, throttled in this way. They have reach on their tweets. So that's that's just the way that platform has gone. It's it's really not as free speech platform. Uh, and remember that Elon Musk's objective there in purchasing Twitter now X uh was to enable a WeChat capability that present in the CCP where you would basically have a single platform doing all your transactions actions and purchases on. You can think of it as has to position himself on, for example. Uh, um, that Don't don't think too much about that image, uh, but I think, think you get the point.
0: Um, right. So I, th- I think uh, we're coming up to time because my wife is going to kill me with how late I'm going to get back. But uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Okay. This was uh, technical glitches aside. I mean, very educational for me, if nothing else. and And it's been a real pleasure. And I've really admired the bravery that you've Displayed in speaking out so forthrightly about all of this. Because, like you say, the, the deplatforming, the eye of Sauron is everywhere. Um, so, thank you so much.